all of us know successful people and you're like, wow, like that person is successful, but they're really good at building relationships and earning people's trust and getting them to open up and stuff like that. So I think that's, this is the single most important thing in the entire economy. And we cannot, can't break that trust. And right now, like if you look at it in all levels, trust is wobbly, right? <laughs> it's wobbly. And is there real news? You look at the hashtags, you, you know, this side or that side, and nobody trusts each other. And that's kind of, that's a, a little bit of a problem. But in sales and in your brand and your business and stuff like that, you need to take all of the actions that make sure that all of those little baby steps lead towards building trust. That's why we, you know, we value reviews because right? those are indicators of trust. Welcome to Building Bigfoot, the podcast about growing your business and yourself profitably. I'm excited to introduce you, uh, Jesse, uh, founder, CEO of Call Action. Uh, Jesse's one of those guys who you see around, like I see him on a lot of, uh, you know, big Facebook groups and he's constantly active in the communities. And it was cool because I met you in person for the first time in LA and it just kind of shows the power of, uh, just, you know, being present and building that awareness in the brand. Because I saw you, you didn't know who I was, but I saw you and I was like, Hey, Jesse, I've seen you. I've seen your face before. I know you. I feel like I know you, but you're just just that presence, which is cool. But um, that's the power of uh, social media and, and screens, right? I mean, there's uh, that psychological uh, thing that says that, you know, if you see someone on a screen, you feel like you know them. And it's like, that's why we have connections with like stars and people you see on TV. And there's no difference between a computer screen or a TV for most people. So <laughs> it creates that sense of awareness. So which is, oh, it's so powerful. Yeah. And then I saw on Facebook, you surfed this wave that to me looked really yeah. big. I've, I've surfed very little waves. Like, <laughs> Yeah, there, were, there was a couple decent sized waves. Uh, I, I like to surf and that particular day, I was probably like, I don't know, eight, 10 feet or something. So not, nothing too crazy. It's not, uh, it's not Nazare in Portugal, <laughs> but you know, for Southern California, it's a pretty, pretty decent size. So. Yeah. So have you, you, you've been surfing a long time. Is that some, did you grow up with surfing? Uh, I started surfing. I was actually probably a little bit older when I started surfing. I was really maybe around 19 or 20 or so. I was working in a, in an office and an older guy was basically a surfer. And he's like, oh yeah, this is how I stop stressing and stuff like that. He's like, really helps with that. And that was pretty early in um, a mortgage career that I had. Uh, I originally started off as like a telemarketer for a mortgage company was my very first like paid job. Um, when I turned 18, I got my real estate license right away. And then I was working in this real estate in this mortgage office and I, you know, feeling kind of stressed and stuff like that. And as, uh, if you're younger and you're self-employed, you gotta, you gotta earn that keep because uh, when you're self-employed, you're unemployed every day. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, he kind of, you know, let me borrow a board. And then like, I just kind of started surfing, not so regularly. Um, but, you know, maybe once a month or something like that. And as time has progressed, I just uh, really got into it. And and now I try and surf like, you know, three or four days a week if I can. <laughs> it's my gym. Oh, it's my gym. It's my church. It's my, my sanctuary. It's my place where I think about work and, and uh, you know, daydream looking off into the horizon because... Uh, it allows you to get creative and relax at the same time. So it is, it's a cool space. I love being near the ocean. I just like to be near where the waves right. are coming in and you just feel that energy and the, it's just beautiful. I was actually born in Cape Town. Oh, okay. So it's, you got two, two oceans and they yeah. meet, you got the Indian ocean, you got the 
Atlantic Ocean, boom, and they just yeah, yeah. And so, uh, and and so one side is freezing cold, yep. and the other side is very warm. It's just this weird. Um, it's a weird place nice. in in a very good way. Yeah, in a, a very good way. But the the one thing I always think of, so like uh, going down to, um, oh, uh, I was in Mexico and I went surfing uh-huh. and I rented a board and where I was staying, there was no, there was nobody surfing out there. It was just like, I was just looking at the waves. I'm like, this looks like a beautiful place. And then I go out there and I sit on my board and I'm waiting for the waves and I'm waiting to catch one. I'm starting to think like, why is no one else <laughs> out here? <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you there. I had that experience one time I was down in Peru. I took my family down there for a vacation and, you know, same kind of thing. I was like, I paddled out, waves were pretty big and I had rented the board. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I kind of understand why I'm the only person because it's kind of like a little resort area. It was like midweek and it's like private houses. It was kind of like our early stage of Airbnb. But then I was like waiting out there looking back at my family, my, I have two kids and they were pretty young at that point in time. And then, you know, uh, I'm like, wow, like I probably shouldn't really be out here right now. (laughs) (laughs) And I just remember when your mind starts to play tricks on you, then all of a sudden like this, the water was really frothy and, and, and like, you know, when you get that crazy foam from big waves and stuff, and in my mind, all of a sudden, you know, your mind starts to wander. You're like, oh, crap, like this might not be such a good decision. And then this like dolphin or porpoise popped out right next to me. And I literally crapped in my pants. <laughs> I was like, all right, that's it. Like, I'm done. <laughs> uh, that, so, yeah, I, I'm, I can relate to all those experiences. Uh, so you, you said that you're going to be here in Canada yeah. in this winter. And so do you ski or snowboard? I snowboard. Um, so I've been doing that. Uh, interesting snowboarding story. So I'm a little bit older. I'm 52. So the first time I went snowboarding, I was driving cross country. I'm originally from Quebec, Canada. And so I was going cross country at my folks. And I was probably, I don't know, I was maybe like, 12 years old or something like that. And I had been skiing beforehand, but you know, like most skiers back then, I hated skiing because the boots just killed my feet. <laughs> so we yeah. end up on the way to Quebec, Canada in a resort area in Burlington, Vermont. And all of a sudden they're like, hey, you know, here's this new thing that you can rent, you can try out. So you'd, you'd rent a pair of Sorel boots and a wood board, which was a, a really the original Burton snowboards. And so you just kind of strapped yourself in this thing and hooked yourself down the hill. And I did that that one time. My feet were comfortable and I kind of connected with the feeling of being in that parallel stance and uh, haven't skied since. <laughs> That's like you know, 30 or 40 years ago. So. <laughs> but now I, I snowboard pretty regularly. So I, yeah, I, I like snowboarding too. I, I snowboarded, um, for many years and then, uh, sort of right around, uh, must've been, uh, 18, uh, I think when I started skiing, I thought, okay, I should try something. Uh, Cause it's funny how like progression works in the mind. I thought, Oh, I'm, I've, I've progressed, right. you know, I've, I've reached this, this sort of like pinnacle of probably where I'm going to get. And then I thought I need a new challenge. I start skiing. And then of course, like today, you know, fast forward 20 something years and like the kinds of things that people are doing on snowboards today, it's, yeah. it just makes it look like, like it, I laugh. I'm like, I wasn't even close to the peak. <laughs> well, I think with, it, you know, the difference between the two that I've always drawn is that 
skiing is easy to start, but it's hard to master. <laughs> and that's and that's the part I love right. about it. And yeah. uh, it's kind of like golf, right? You're, it's a constant pursuit. And in snowboarding, feels hard to like get it dialed on. Like the first three or four days, like you know, a lot of people just get beat up, and and either it clicks or it doesn't. And once it clicks, then you feel like you do progress pretty quick. You're like, oh, well, I'm riding, you know, double black diamonds or whatever. Not necessarily, you know, hucking yourself off a cliff and doing double backflips or anything, but you feel like you could do double black diamonds, which would maybe be, you know, advanced skiing as a normal skier. <laughs> well, I, I would say, yeah, the big, like the big difference that people, if you don't, haven't tried either, it's like when you see a good snowboarder and, and they're, um, you know, they're very technically competent, but then watch what they do when they hit the, um, the jumps and the landings. Yeah. It's actually way more technical yeah. than skiing. Yeah. Uh. Because skiing, it's yes, it's technical when you're you're going down the terrain, but as soon as you hit a jump, like you've got two, you've got two sticks, <laughs> so you you've got you got twice yeah. as much, and then you just you can catch like you're not going to catch an edge as easily on yeah. skis. Like you can you can bail out of things. Yeah. Steve, my brother, I watched him do a backflip. One of his skis flew off, and he still landed it with the one <laughs> ski. Like it's just yeah, it's on footage too. We yeah, have it. Wow. It's. uh but I was, I was thinking about like that when you were talking about uh, just that feeling of maybe I, I shouldn't be out here alone. I put myself in. I definitely experienced that when I was skiing. I came above this cliff and it's up on the Falcon chair in a ski resort called Big White. And mm-hmm. if you look up on the Falcon, there's uh, it, it's it's nice, but it's all it's all like kind of either it's off out of bounds or it's all blacks. Right. And um, but there's, there's a section of it where I was just looking and I was like, oh, that looks like a really clean line. I think there's a, like, it looks like a drop and I get to the top of the drop and I'm looking down and I'm thinking, well, it's probably about, you know, nothing crazy, but like 20 yeah. feet or <laughs> something like that. And I was like, oh, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be doing this by myself. <laughs> uh, and that was the first time I was the very first time I ever remember. I was like, just, uh, just in my thirties. And I was like, oh, yeah. this is, uh, this is something changed in my brain. Yep, yep. And uh, uh, I had that, uh, I just, had that similar experience. I remember maybe 20 years or so ago and I was in Jackson hole and same kind of thing, like the main cornice or whatever, the main face that most, most real advanced people have not themselves off. And I got up there on my snowboard. I was like, yeah, no, <laughs> <laughs> I'll stick to surfing. Like the repercussions don't feel quite as bad. <laughs> it, yeah. It's true, and I, I, yeah, I see, like, yeah, I see mountain bikers and some of the stuff that oh, they do yeah, these days. Oh, yeah, that's insane. <laughs> it is insane, and there is no forgiveness. Yeah. Like, if, if uh, and sometimes they'll land it, but the wheel bends, and you're just like, that's just yep. crazy. Like uh, to me, that's I'm, I'm like, that's not even fun anymore. It's just gone to the next level. But it's, it is, I mean, amazing. But it all, it all relates to to business too, uh, and how we do things. So for yourself, Jesse, like, have you? Uh, have you always been entrepreneurial? Is like because you mentioned you were you're basically like you're you're self-employed. Yeah. You're building this business. Like, have you kind of what's your journey been like? How did you get started, and then where did it go? Yeah, from? Um, I think I've always had kind of the entrepreneurial journey um, in bones. Basically, luckily my dad gave that to me because he was always super encouraging about you know trying to to make some money and take chances and do your own thing. So I can remember being really, really young and starting like a lemonade stand on the street corner and doing that kind of stuff. And I'll I'll give you a funny backstory. 
we used to go to a, a, a car swap meet here in, in Southern California. It's called the Pomona Antique Car Swap Meet. And it's really huge. It's where the LA uh, County Fairgrounds are. My dad used to take some parts and he was a mechanic. Um, and would put cars together and build hot rods and work on boats and stuff like that. So he always had a bunch of stuff laying around. And so we, we would go to this, uh, this particular event. And he's like, hey, you should bring your lemonade stand because like we're sitting out here on this black asphalt, like there's only drink stands like every, you know, 15th or 20 row, you probably do pretty good. And like we're sitting here anyway, so you might as well make some money. So so at about 13 or so, start off with like a five gallon drum and, you know, do pretty good. That first one sold like, you know, the entire five gallons worth of lemonade in like three hours or something like that made like 40 or 50 bucks, whatever it was like, you know, some, something wow. fairly small. And this shows like every three months. So next month, you know, or the next show, we kind of upgrade because you're like, well, there's supply demand. Like, <laughs> let's let's get, ramp this sucker up. So then buy two of those five gallon drugs that you see like on the back of construction trucks, sell through all of that stuff on the next one. So I was like, wow, there's still supply and demand here. So like, might as well kind of keep going. So by the time I'm like 15 or 16 years old or so, um, we were doing like, I had like three of those 15 or those five gallon drug, uh, drums basically. And then I started adding in Coke basically. So I'd buy like six packs of Coke and sell the Coke for like 50 bucks a can or 50 cents a can. And then that kind of grew and grew and grew. And pretty soon, like I'm buying like 15 or 20 cases of Coke and like have this lemonade stand. So all of a sudden making, you know, a thousand bucks in a day or something like that at 14, 15 years old. Um, and then guys are really, really creative because people were like, hey, you know, the, the guys walking around, they'd be like, you know, you got a beer or anything. I was like, oh, I don't have any beer. I can't sell beer. So then you get super creative. And so write a sign, buy, you know, five pounds worth of peanuts and say, buy a peanut for a dollar, get a free beer. Because <laughs> not selling beer, right? <laughs> so long story short, by the time that this all said and then and, and kind of moves on, it's gathering so much attention now at the swap meet that we're getting copycat people that they're selling like nails, buy it, get a free beer and, you know, probably doing like 40, 50 cases of, of, <laughs> of beer. <laughs> so all of a sudden I'm making more money than my pops is basically selling his, you know, goods at that particular swap meet until one day I had a guy that came up and he kind of looked like one of those, uh, those uh those cops from one of the shows or whatever he's like hey can i have a beer i'm like no you know i don't you don't you don't buy beer basically buy a peanut you get a free beer and you can choose it so the guy's like all right you know here's whatever two bucks you know here give me a handful of peanuts and i you know i want a coors light or something so hand him over the coors light and all of a sudden like he opens up his jacket turns back around it was atf (laughs) so the swap me itself the grounds i guess had kind of caught wind of all of this stuff because it was taking business from <laughs> away from their uh their real stand their concession and uh yeah. and so then uh you know i ended up in court at like 16 or 15 16 years old and the judge is like so you know what were you doing blah 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 i was like oh running a lemonade stand and you know expanded and i tell him the whole story and he's like how are your grades kid and i'm like you know i'm uh you know a minus student i'm on you know honor roll all of that stuff he's all how's your how's your uh your attendance i'm like oh, you know re- super good attendance he's like why are you doing this so i was like well you know it's kind of business working on saving money to go to college <laughs> and so so the the guy basically uh, 
just basically dismisses the case. It just gives me like, you know, five years probation or something like that, that if I ever got caught doing the same thing, then I would go to jail. So, <laughs> so they just say it stopped that career. But, you know, really early on gave me that entrepreneurial spirit, you know, thanks to my dad. And, uh, and then, you know, parlayed some of that money into some other stuff. And, and that's when I got a legit job of being a telemarketer and, and things like that. So, um, but my last real job, I was, you know, 17 and a half, 18 years old. I worked at a clothing store selling suits because <laughs> I knew a bunch of mortgage people from working in a mortgage business. So I basically would cross sell them and be like, hey, I work at this suit store. Let me sell you some suits. <laughs> and, uh, and then as soon as I got my license, then uh, I just kind of kind of went from there, got into the mortgage business. And, and then that just kind of parlayed into being permanently unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was kind of, oh, kind awesome. of a, kind of a super interesting journey. And then the technology part over time just kind of came based on trying to solve the problem that, you know, every business owner has basically, which is, you know, how do I get customers and how do I scale myself and get more efficient and things like that. And, and over the years that just kind of progressed and, and eventually led to uh, what I'm doing now, which is basically the founder of call action. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so how did, how did call action start? Uh, it started pretty interestingly. So I was doing that real estate space, as I mentioned to you. Um, and uh, what I was doing really early on is I started trying to figure out, um, because my dad was a mechanic going back to, to his story and he would work really hard as an entrepreneur. And, you know, he had been self-employed his whole, his whole life. He came here when he was like 17 years old, had like 40 bucks in his pocket and was able to earn, you know, make it until, uh, you know, do a pretty good life and provide a good life for myself. So where, where's he, where did he come uh, from? Quebec, Canada. For, so East coast, basically North of, uh, Burlington. So, yeah. uh, and so then that's where yep, you were that's born. Where I was born French Canadian, the whole thing. So went back to have me. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so what ended up happening is, um, he'd always been pretty good about trying to encourage me with like, technology and stuff. He's like, don't be a mechanic. <laughs> and uh, really early on, he bought me a computer. I was maybe like 14 years old or something. I had like an old like 386 with like, I don't know, one <laughs> 18 megabytes of RAM or something like that. Like cost like 5,000 bucks or something for this thing. And it was just basically a dust gatherer on the, de on the desk because like the whole DOS programming language did not resonate with me at all. Like I just didn't, I couldn't see it, if that made sense. And then, you know, we got CompuServe and then we, we, you know, we got that, the AOL disk and all of that stuff. And it still was kind of super early on. I was like, wow, this, this doesn't seem like it's going to do anything for me. But when I got into the mortgage business, you know, part of what we would have to do as a salesperson, you'd go around to real estate offices and, and you would, you know, try and build relationships and, and get business. So early on, that primary form of building business was you would make flyers and you would leave them at the offices as you visited them. And so in like 86, 87, 88, uh, no, 89, 90, you know, the GUI and all of that stuff really hadn't kind of come out yet with basically... Um, Windows and Microsoft Office. So we were making kind of flyers by hand. You would take like font that you found in the newspaper or whatever it was because we were like just, you know, 
hustlers basically and you'd cut out all these letters and make your own handmade flyer basically and type some of it on a typewriter and you know blow it up on the on the on the copy machine and make those flyers and so when finally windows came out i was like oh wow like now i can use this thing and so now all of a sudden that computer became super interesting to me um from that that led into like well i still need customers what what can i do so I started learning how to use Microsoft Access and doing database merges and stuff like that. So then got into direct mail. And then I just kind of progressed with technology as that kind of just rolled through. So then a little thing called WinFax came out. So instead of going and visiting the offices and delivering my flyers that were now professionally printed, I would just fax it to everyone, basically. So I'm like following these kind of technology trends as they're, as they're kind of happening. And... Then one day I was working with my appraiser and he's like, oh yeah, he's like, I get these CD-ROMs when I do an appraiser and it has all of the previous month's closing data of all of the properties for these particular counties. So I was like, hey, can you give me some of those old ones? Maybe there's something I can do with that. He's like, yeah, sure. He's like, I pay uh, whatever, $1,000 a month for this data because he needs it to do his job. And once it was over a month old, it wasn't good anymore. So... I got those CD-ROMs and I would load, you know, download some of the data and start trying to figure out how to manipulate it. So eventually my direct mail campaigns became super highly personalized and I, I would query the databases and find some historical stuff to, to really only send direct mail to highly targeted clients. So I would look at what our current rates are, look at that data and based on historically when people basically close their transaction, I could kind of estimate what interest rate they were paying. So then I could do direct mail and be like, hey, you're probably paying eight to 12%. <laughs> I can refinance you at, at 8%. And I ended up getting pretty good at doing direct mail pieces and then you know, focusing on uh, a laser printer and figure out how to do handwriting font and then slant the font so that it looks really real and, you know, get the envelope open and just went through all of that progression. But the mortgage business still being the core business. Where things really changed for me and where like the light bulb really went off was uh, driving with my dad one day, we were going fishing or something. It was like midweek. And it was super early morning listening to, you know, AM talk radio or something like that. And then um, this was probably about 1997 or so. Um, we were listening and then the like CNBC or whatever the, you know, financial talk radio show talks about like a new company launches and owner becomes, you know, multimillionaire or, you know, overnight or whatever. And that company was Netscape. And I was like, what the hell is this? Like, I don't, I don't know what this is. And basically, it was the first internet browser. And what had happened is maybe two years before the standard um, domains, dub, dub, dubs came out. And so, uh, so all of a sudden, it was like a light bulb kind of moment. I was like, wow, this browser thing. Now you have like, uh, you have these domain names, and then you have, you know, regular, you can search for it, and you can pull up these websites on Yahoo and, and things like that. So, I threw myself way into that, bought a book on like how to build a website and started going to, um, back then, um, there still wasn't conferences per se, but in 1999, went to my first like SEO conference or 98 or 99. And, uh, I ended up building a bunch of websites and they are all mortgage specific stuff. And I was buying exact match domains, um, because that seemed to kind of make sense to me. 
right? I'm thinking if back then, you know, the search in was, was maybe Alta Vista and um, Northern Light and Google was just kind of coming around. And then there's obviously Yahoo, which was uh, more of a, a directory and stuff. So where it got super interesting was, you know, the exact match domains. I was like, I was trying to imagine what the problem was that Google's trying to solve, right? And because it seemed like this company now is really picking up steam. And so you take this really opaque concept of like the internet and a search engine putting keywords, pops up websites. Well, which one should pop up first? <laughs> so the way that I imagined it was watching, walking into like a Barnes and Noble. I, I thought of it as, well, if I walked into Barnes and Noble and if I'm curious about, you know, um, Harley Davidson motorcycles, for example, I'm going to go to the front and I'm going to ask the person like, hey, where's the section with all the motorcycles? Right. So then you would kind of filter that data down, go into that section where all the motorcycle stuff is. And then you would probably look at all the book titles. In my mind, the book titles are the domain names. And so I was like, okay, well, Google is trying to be the librarian to find the right book off the shelf. Right. <laughs> so how do you pick the right book? So if the title contains the majority of the keywords or the thing that I'm looking for, that's probably the best book because that's what we do in real life. Right. So, so that led into uh, the exact match domains. And then thinking about that same book model, what I thought is, well, when I'm looking for that book, then I'll open up the table of contents and I'm going to see how much of that book is actually about what I'm specifically looking for. So if it's Harley Davidson's, as an example, I've got an old 1983 shovelhead motorcycle. It's very, very specific. So I would want a book that has the most information about shovelhead motors of that particular era. And then if I looked at that table of contents, if it had one versus a bunch of content, I'm probably going to go to the next book that has a title that might be Shovelhead Harley Davidson, look at the title of contents and kind of go through all of that stuff. So big story is that this idea of like content siloing or basically doing like um, putting all the same similar type of content being found and being good for SEO, that just seemed to kind of click naturally with me. So I was able to rank websites like pretty quickly and be number one in search terms related to the mortgage space, which was ultra competitive really early on uh, at the early start of the internet. And uh, so so that was that's kind of the early part of the journey of how how I got into that. So <laughs> and and the cra- the wild thing is how right you were. Yeah. Um, because that's exactly what ended up happening is Google started to rank sites based on the keywords of the yep, domains. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so Yeah, it's so that that you know it seemed to work and it was working really really quickly. Um and then I have a personality where I'm always curious. Like I've constantly, if something like maybe I have ADD or something, but I'm always looking to try and learn. I'm basically a lifetime, lifelong learner and I have stacks and stacks of book all over my house. And like <laughs> I'm reading two or three books at the same time, usually um, until you know I'm bored and then I'll jump off to something else or I look in the, in the references and then there's some, you know, some key point and then I go and buy that book and so on and so forth. But the big story behind that was in 1999, how this, the evolution of this journey was, I was still doing mortgages. And at this point now, I'm like, I'm originating a lot of inquiries, like basically over a hundred inquiries a month 
really early on were coming directly to me from people finding on the website and saying like, hey, I want to get a mortgage. So now like, I'm like, this is very real because <laughs> right? I didn't need to go and talk to real estate agents anymore because I'm bringing the customers to me and then I could give those customers back. But the problem was that Google at that moment, all of the search results were, were global, right? wasn't localized yet. So I go to um, this conference. So now I'm got one foot in technology. So I go to like some what was starting of the SEO conferences that were happening back then. So stuff like PubCon and uh, Search Engine Land and a couple other ones that are out there. Um, and at the same time, I catch wind of another conference called Inman. And I think it was only the second or third one. And this was put out by Brad Inman of Inman News. And so I was like, oh, this kind of looks interesting because it's talking about real estate and technology. And like, this is right up my alley. <laughs> so end up going to that particular event and, you know, learn and, and meet a bunch of people and stuff like that. And nothing super earth shattering. I think at that time, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, they were releasing something called Desktop Underwriter, which was kind of this online desktop underwriting for basically mortgages to try and speed up the process. It was the introduction of FICO scores and stuff like that to help with that scoring. And uh, it was either 1999 or 2000, somewhere right around there. I go back to Inman the following year, and there's a guy that gets up on stage and he's like, I'm going to reinvent basically the mortgage industry. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to start doing mortgages online. And in back of my mind, I'm sitting in the back of the room and I'm thinking like, well, man, I've been doing this for like two and a half years. <laughs> so the audience kind of laughs a little bit and they're like, yeah, that's probably never going to happen, blah, blah, blah. And someone, you know, asks like, how many transactions did you do? And he's like, well, I've done seven. And then the room kind of, kind of laughs. And, and so he basically walks off stage and he's like, you know, this is, going to work and finishes his pitch. So I go and see him at the, after the thing is done. I said, Hey, yeah. I was like, uh, you know, my name is Jesse. Um, I kind of do what you do. I have some websites da da da. I was like, um, but I get transactions that I can't service. Would you like some of them? And so the guy ended up being Doug Glebda from lending tree, the founder. <laughs> so through that, um, built, a relationship. I got handed off to some of his other people and, you know, I started sending him some, some, some of my leads basically. And, um, so, you know, you're talking like 20 something years ago. And so it was really early, uh, kind of affiliate marketing. And, um, and that did pretty well for me. <laughs> and uh, you know, I kept on building different websites and stuff like that. And then what happened is I started getting really curious about mortgages was one thing, but what I could see based on the available data at that point in time was that the real keywords, like the ones that really had impact was actually anything related to houses. People were looking for property information. So, uh Online IDX websites were starting to come around. So agents um, would have uh, private access to an IDX website. And so you could have an agent who bought a website oftentimes through like Morgan Carey from Real Estate Webmaster or something like that, who was really early on on this game and who was part of SEO super early on as well. Uh, he would have all these, he would sell websites and then they would display property information. And at the same time, blogging was starting to kind of come around. So that was probably the most accessible thing for, for real estate agents that were pretty kind of uh, cutting edge. So 
I started building websites. When, when was this? This has been around 04, Yeah, maybe? about 03, 04, somewhere right around there. Um, yeah. About three years before, two, three years before Trulia and Zillow and all of that stuff. I think Trulia was about to come out because at that point now there started to be these websites that were popping up. A few MLSs had public search and stuff like that available. And... Um, I remember watching a, a news thing and there was a guy that basically, I think it was on TechCrunch back then. And some guy had taken Craigslist listings and overlay Google map search on it. And it was the first like map search thing. And this was 2003 or four, somewhere right around there, I believe. So immediately upon seeing that, I found a programmer. I was like, I'm going to build that. <laughs> So I ended up being like the second map search base, but I did it with basically for sale by owners. So what I built was basically a website where for sale by owners could list their house because I wanted to accomplish two things. I wanted to get the mortgage side. <laughs> so it was easier for me to do the introduction. And then most of the time those properties wouldn't sell. So then I would be able to refer to agents and then basically establish those business so that I could get like a marketing multiplier effect and get more business from everyone. So that kind of grew and grew and grew. Eventually, I think I had like 50 or 60,000 listings on there. And, you know, it, it ended up doing pretty good. I was the start of like PPC and stuff. So I did some, uh, some of that as well. And, uh, and then just, you know, built a bunch of real estate related kind of websites. Um, and that got, got, was doing pretty good. And I was getting some attention. People were recognizing that website because pretty well optimized. So if you go to like... I don't know, internet archive or something like that. Just type in like for sale by owner center <laughs> and uh, you'll, uh, you'll end up seeing kind of some of those early versions of that and, and SEO tags and all of that stuff. And then I got invited by a company because um, I was doing back then, you remember something called bar camps? Do you ever do a bar camp? No. Bar camp was like a, no. an unconference conference. So basically think of it like a modern day mastermind, but they would have a whiteboard and you would get like little sticky notes and you say, I want to talk about whatever. <laughs> and so it was a disorganized conference where all of the attendees were the conference speakers. And it originally came out of San Francisco, probably because of like a burning man kind of ethos or something like that. Huh. And so, um, so we started doing these things called bar camps and one of them was called, a, our, we called it, we, somebody else rebranded it as the RE bar camp. So a lot of early people, the earliest employees of, you know, um, some of the major tech companies in the prop tech space were actually really early bloggers in there. So it was like Ginger Wilcox, Jay Thompson, people like that. Basically, they were already pretty aggressive bloggers and writers. And so they were real estate attracting that kind of business. And I was just kind of participating in that, that same scenario. And I remember going to a conference. I got invited by a company called um, Home. Oh, God. Why can't I remember what it was now? <laughs> it was basically a. Um, a company that kind of did a uh, for sell by assisted for sell by owner model, um, but it was like a big national franchise. And um, so I went and they asked me to speak because they're like, well, you know, we kind of work with the same target demographic. You seem to know what's going on with this like SEO thing and blogging because we see like your listings basically appear all over on the Internet. Right. And our agents are taking notice. So can you come speak? I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. So I go over there, talk a little bit about 
SEO and blogging and importance of keywords and give my story about like, imagine you were the person walking into <laughs> Barnes and Noble. How do you find the book? Right. That was the easiest way to kind of give context to that. And after I get done with my pitch, everyone's like, oh, that's super, super cool, blah, blah, blah. And there's a company that started forming around that time was, and it was called Trulia. And what Trulia was doing was going out and basically getting some of that data. And they were building, they built a map search and it was kind of the, really the first portal per se that was public facing, not owned by a brand, right? And um, I had known about it, but that was basically it. I think I spoke to one of the founders and maybe at one of the Inmans uh, the year before or something like that. So I get to this conference, give my, my little talk. And then the people that come on stage right after me is basically Sammy Anikian and Pete Flint, basically the founders of Trulia. And so they tell the audience, they're like, yeah, that SEO stuff works. That, like that's black magic. It's always constantly changing and stuff. Just make it easy. Just give us all your listings and we'll take care of it for you. <laughs> and you get back the leads. And in my mind, I was like, oh, that's the start of the end right there. So, um, uh, so when, did, when did Trulia start? Was that 2006? Uh, yeah. Five, six, somewhere right around there. The, the, and the company was Help You Sell. Now I remember, it just came back to me there. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, so then that company gave, basically offered a feed to me to put on my website of all of the listings, but I just didn't have, you know, I was just a little bootstrap guy, built a website on, you know, a Microsoft front page. <laughs> and, you know, hosting was really expensive and stuff like that. So I was like, yeah, I, I would take it for that. Really, I'd be doing a disservice because I can't, I can't maintain that. So I was kind of aware enough of my own limits, but Pete and Sammy, they had raised a bunch of VC money and they're like, heck yeah, give us that thing. <laughs> so they took it. That became one of their earliest and first feeds. And then after that, historically, you know, the Century 21 and all the other brands wanted to basically get online. And this was a good way to get free exposure. And so, and then the people that would do all those RER bar camps, they eventually got hired by companies like Trulia because Trulia was like, you know, all these agents hate us. Can you act as the liaison? And this was like the agent uh, relationship kind of people. And, you know, all of those guys moved on to illustrious careers in all of those companies. And then um, I remember like when, when Zillow came out, the day they came out, I knew that there was a bunch of like hype kind of building around it. And the day that the Zestimate came out, like, you know, the first thing that everybody did, because now the internet was starting to get pretty ubiquitous, like DSL was pretty much in everyone's houses and stuff like that. Like it wasn't on dial up anymore. So it was fast enough to download the images. So there was like good timing of that technology, but it wasn't mobile yet, right? Because the iPhone wasn't even, was barely going to come out, like I think the following year or had just come out because probably about 2006 or so. So Zillow launches, very first day falls flat because like it just got crushed because like a million visitors or something all try to look up their estimate. <laughs> and I always think this part is funny because, you know, right now, the, obviously the real estate industry going through some changes and everyone looks at that company and, and some of the others as basically being the enemy and they're like, oh, like they stole all of our data. But the reality is historically what's correct is they had a huge audience, huge audience based off of the Zestimate. And then all of the other companies were willing to give basically their listing feeds to them because they were already giving it to Trulia. And so 
Zillow did not get listing data until like after the fact, which was kind of was kind of interesting. And when I watch today's conversations around this, um, you know, it's it's an interesting story. So, but yeah, just kind of watched the progress on that. Built built more websites, and then uh, eventually, I just got out of the mortgage business altogether um, because in the early two thousands, I had a friend that was a mortgage backed securities trader, um, and I was telling him, I was like, yeah, this doesn't feel right. Like <laughs> this, is a, this business, like we're doing these loans and like, you know, debt to income ratios are way out of whack. And like this automation is using like this credit score, FICO score thing, which can be like gamified a little bit. And, and I was like, this doesn't feel correct. And I was kind of telling my friends like, this is, this is going to blow up. Like it's going to be a problem. And so if you ever watched like the movie, the big short, like my buddy introduced me. He asked me to go and talk to one of his um, superiors at his company, which at that point in time was one of the biggest holders of mortgage-backed securities. I basically told him, I was like, what do you think you guys are, are buying? Because Wall Street sometimes is a little bit disassociated from the boots on the ground. And they were basically saying like, hey, we're buying like 80% first mortgages, you know, customers putting 20% down. I was like, but you're not <laughs> because we're doing a concurrent second at the same time. And I was like, does your mortgage tape when you buy these pools of loans, are they disclosing that you're getting the second mortgage or that there's a second mortgage that's recorded, you know, 10 seconds after. And so that was kind of maybe eye-opening for them. And then we talked about, you know, how FICO scores worked and, and some of the things that lenders were doing back then to, to try and improve that very quickly. And, so, my, so basically really early on about two years before the entire market blows up, my friend, based on some of those kind of conference and some of the learnings that I was telling him about the market, his company was able to escape like the rash of what was going to happen and didn't go the route of Lehman Brothers. But when I watched the movie, The Big Short, like it just feels like I was in there because <laughs> that party, all of those things that you see in that movie were the final party in uh, Las Vegas. Like I was at that party and, and all of those kinds of, all of that stuff. So I just had this weird career between like real estate and being curious enough and willing to talk to people on the outside that, uh, that's just exposed me to some, some really, uh, interesting things. So over time, so, <laughs> but, that is so interesting. Yeah. Like what a, what an interesting journey into, uh, s such a fascinating part of the real estate yeah. tech history. Yeah. And you were, you were just a part of that whole thing, which yeah. is pretty cool. You know, and, and er, um, early then, because I was on the mortgage side, like really what happened was like lending tree came out and then I watched two companies really kind of explode. Right. So one of them was, you know, Quicken loans. It's called Quicken because back then we knew that speed to lead was important and that's what was helping convert these inquiries. So that company grew really, really fast. And what and I knew from my own personal experience of generating those leads, trying to call people back and, and trying to close those transactions. And during my career, I did about 3,000 loans altogether, basically. So I knew that, you know, that was really, really important. And so as I completely phased out of this and I watched basically what was happening and then took some time off to spend time with my kids and lived in Argentina for a year and like did stuff like that. You know, I, I was like, I need to do, 
uh, I'm done building like these little websites. It's just kind of like this side hustle kind of thing. And now that, you know, I'm older, I, I want to do something that's a little bit more serious for them because now they're older and, you know, I'm just dad and <laughs> they're off living their lives. So, um, so that's where call action kind of came from, um, which was when to, when Zillow and Trulia and all of that stuff kind of came around, like in the mortgage space, we were already doing online leads for maybe four years before really that I even took hold on the real estate side of things. And it took a while to kind of really come up with the idea that I wanted to do, but, um, you know, in 15 or 16 or so, I watched what happened in Zillow. You know, I was almost an early employee there, but I didn't want to move to Seattle. <laughs> so I want to stay in, in California. So Stay in the sunshine. Yeah, so yeah. I, I passed up on that opportunity, which is one of those ones where you go like in your own life as an entrepreneur, you're like, well, you know, that U-turn might have been pretty good there. <laughs> but... Um, it, call actually just came from seeing all of a sudden all of these online lead platforms similar to Lending Tree that were selling online leads to companies like Quicken Loans and to loan officers, who I had pretty good relationships with all of those original companies because I was still doing that back then. I watched it, I saw it coming in the real estate space. So I knew that the problem was going to be the same. So basically created call action that really solved that problem that was the problem that I had personally felt for eight or 10 years <laughs> leading up to that point of, you know, originating a bunch of leads online and stuff like that and trying to close those transactions. So that's kind of like the really long winded story of, uh, of the founding of, you know, that particular company and what gave me the idea to do that. And, you know, ultimately we're focused on a really small niche, which for me is I'm focused on the real estate space pretty well, but the company is really trying to solve a much bigger problem. Like the TAM I'm trying to solve basically is the fact that, you know, sales and marketing is a global problem and follow up with inquiries. You know, there's, uh, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars that are basically spent <laughs> in sales and marketing and, you know, to generate an inquiry for businesses. And so in salespeople, the international problem of, you know, following up with your leads and stuff like that is not one of just real estate, but it's insurance, it's mortgage, it's auto dealers, it's basically everyone out there. And the path that I took basically is to really focus on this narrow niche until I can really feel that I've solved the problem there at the highest possible level that I can and basically go really deep before you go wide. Um, and that's just kind of um, a principle that I have from even building websites and all of that stuff is like this idea of like niches to riches. If you want to use that, you know, classic term or something, basically. Um, so that's, that's a little bit where we're at now. So, and still, still on the journey. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and it's a problem that that that's not going away. It's it's one of those problems that is going to be around forever. It's yeah. it's it. You know, every industry, every person, every uh, professional that gets into business at some point or other, they realize, okay, uh, you know, first they realize sales is a very important part of business. Right. Then they realize, okay, I got to be able to generate new uh, new opportunities, new inquiries. Yeah. But then you've got all these different challenges because you're trying to scale yourself, you're trying to scale your business, you're trying to yeah. Im improve your systems. But then uh, at some point or other, you need to have systems built around 
the uh, the pipeline. Yeah. And if you don't have that, you're you're essentially spending a lot of money on acquisition, but you're not doing anything on right. the nurturing. And that 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 very very key part in the middle, yeah, is the make or break of a profitable pipeline. Yeah, and. Yeah, it's very, it's it's so critical. It's so important. Um, yeah, if you think about it, like, you know, of like the Toyota motorway, right? I think of a lot of people talk about it as like a sales funnel or funnels, but like, as you mentioned, you use the word pipeline. And I agree that that is actually the correct word because what happens is you're making investments into raw materials, mo- no different than Toyota invests to buy, you know, plastic, metal, aluminum, or whatever to build a car. And they run it through this pipeline, through these core stages, and it's going to come out at the other end basically as a completed vehicle. And the goal is you want to minimize the manufacturer's defect, right? You want to limit any loss along that stage because now you get cost efficiency. So if I buy metal for 100 cars, I want to build 100 cars. (laughs) And, you know, you would have 0% defective rate. Now, when you think about that as a pipeline, the weakest link is always going to be the first place where the process has inefficiency. So for us, like we can solve the acquisition problem, but if we don't do the follow-up, and we don't continue to nurture and do all of those things, we can never move that inquiry to basically a closing and whatever trans, whatever business you're in, basically. So, um, so the way that we kind of think about it is how do we build all of those efficiencies in each one of those things? And the common problem for most of all businesses in sales from stage to stage to stage of that pipeline, it's always a follow-up problem. And that problem actually grows exponentially the longer that you're in business because you generate more raw inquiries of people who are not interested now. And let's say in the real estate space, 97, 98% of those people are going to tell you, I'm not interested right now because they're doing research early on into the journey that they're about to take and they're trying to avoid pain that they know may come in the future. And that's the beauty of the internet is the fact that we enjoy it because it allows us to collect knowledge and get prepared for future events, right? And so we're trying to self-diagnose as much as we can. And because most of us don't like to be sold, we're going to spend a lot of time in there really early on. So the way that I kind of look at it is the problem is if I, you know, generate a lead or what we call an inquiry, because that's really the more correct verbiage not necessarily a lead because look it up in a dictionary, like a lead is not a person who's expressed interest, (laughs) right? It's actually an inquiry. Someone responded to marketing, raised their hand and self-identified. So we think about it from inquiry. You have to have a conversation. Then there's an outcome to that conversation. And generally we need to nurture that relationship based on that outcome. And we need to do personalized nurturing to give that person confidence to get to the Nate stage, which would be possibly an appointment and then the closing. So we call that the ICON process, which is stands for inquiry, conversation, outcome, and nurture. And there's just these repetitive loops in between there. And the gap in between each one of those is always just follow-up. And because we live in a world of ADD and short attention span, really the problem is, is earning someone's attention. So it's yes. got to be scalable, right? So early on, we used to see they would take on average five, six contact attempts to get a hold of someone. As time has kind of progressed, I remember in 2000, like 2020 or so, somewhere right around there, Apple rolled out basically uh, filter unknown callers. 
And I did a blog post and I said, hey, listen, this is about to change the sales game because now all of a sudden, like you're not even going to be able to get a hold of them. <laughs> and it's going to up the amount of contacts that it's going to take. In today's market, what we see specifically on the real estate side of things, it's taking an average of 23, 24 contact attempts to actually make contact with someone on multiple channels. And that's a combination of text messages and also outbound phone calls. So yeah, exact, exactly the same number that we see, 23. Yep, yep, so yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and, and that's just from surveying people who are actively out there prospecting and yep. they're, they're doing all of the things that you're describing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's definitely increased because I want to say it was not that long ago, 2016, where the average temps was seven. Yep. Yeah, it was uh, and less than 10 years. It's, I mean, it's basically, yeah. tri- you know, tripled. <laughs> and it's probably only so going to get worse, right? Because it is going to get worse because you throw an AI on top of this. So yeah. um, some of the stuff that, that's coming out with AI, is it's very exciting. It's very cool. But once people start to um, question whether or not they're even speaking to a person, yeah. that's going to have a whole nother challenge where people are going to have sure. to... Uh, work even harder on establishing the trust. So again, like, yeah. I don't see this problem going away. I yeah. see, I see it becoming more and more important for businesses. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. You know, first, like, let's say if you take a look at what Apple did, you know, it was filter unknown callers. Then basically, it was hide my email. Like, it, you might start, you know, in your guys's business, you may actually start to see some of, you know, iCloud and increase in iCloud emails, right? <laughs> that are kind of randomized, and that's their hide hide my email. So. So that part is going to, I believe, continue to kind of grow. I think we're, you know, I think AI is really, really exciting. I don't believe in sales. It's really going to be super consumer facing. And I just kind of, if I step back and I think about this, most technology, the idea is that you wanted to make it your life easier. Okay. So skin AI, however you want, but think about this. If I call a business, Right? And there's a robot <laughs> that says, press one for sales, press two for billing. Right? Now, this is a robot that is basically telling you it's an early form of a chatbot because it's going to look for a yes or no answer. In this case, you know, a key press to get you to the right department. Right? What do most of us do when that experience actually happens? We press zero. Because <laughs> by the time we're ready to actually talk to someone, the thing is, is we're basically saying there is a high enough urgency and I am going to give you my limited amount of time to give you my attention right now. And I don't want to spend it on hold. I don't want to spend it basically repeating myself in a voicemail. I want to talk to someone immediately and now. And that is only yeah. amplified by the immediateness that the internet basically gives us. Because now all businesses, the thing is, you use, you use to compete against a like business, right? You go like, well, you know, Joe's plumbing service is really good. Why can't you be like Joe? <laughs> right? But now you're getting compared to disparate businesses because it's an experience economy now. So now you're like, why is... Um, why is order? Why can't I use? Uh, why can't ordering food be as easy as ordering an Uber? <laughs> like those are two completely different businesses, right? But it's created this expectation of immediate gratification that we currently live, and that's why 
as business continues to move forward, I think what you're going to end up seeing is people are going to value real life connections more. That's why social media, I believe, is really, really important, why it has the legs that it does, because people were 40 or 50,000 years worth of DNA that we sent around a campfire, you know, having stories with people. And now that most of us are behind screens, that social media is the new campfire. It's like that's the new community place where you're spending your time. And when you really take the time to make an outbound call or respond to a text message, you want a real person there at the other end. And so I believe that this is where we have to be really careful with what is the progress of AI. We've implemented it in our business that really to try and and simplify inefficiencies in sales and limit the cognitive load of the salesperson, but we still want the salesperson to make the calls, have the conversation with the customers and do the things that are valuable. Um, yeah, and, and it's interesting you say that that way because I agree with you. I think that humans are obviously designed for connection yep. and they're designed for a relationship. And so when uh, we've we've been that way for uh, forever. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it, it's just, it's how we, uh, it's how we create friendships, it's how we create relationships, how we create trust. It's how we, uh, it's how we collaborate and build really cool things yeah. together. And when somebody is looking for a person for they're they're looking for a consultant in a process. The last thing they're looking for is a machine. Right. They're looking for a human being. They're they're saying like, who is who is somebody that I can trust that I can consult with? Like if if a person has a deep question, they're going to go find a guru. Right. You know, right. it's like it's fun to play with AI and just see what kind of the response becomes. Right. You know what 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 it generates. But there's a big difference. Like you don't go to your deep questions to AI and then leave it there. No. You're like, no, I ultimately want to have wise people that I can ask these questions to get some real wisdom back yeah. and implement it and. I think that's the, the the challenge with sales is that it requires going through the um, it, it, it requires quite a thick skin because you're going through rejection after rejection after rejection to get the conversation with the individual who it they are looking for right. the consultant, you know, and then you have this one magical conversation and now that turns into a great relationship and it's a win win. Yeah. But the the challenge is how do you get there without having to go through you know, one, you know, one rejection after the next, after the next. Yeah. And it, it's definitely interesting. Like I've read a lot of books on like what creates trust. Like if you just kind of think about that, like referrals are based on trust, right? And you, know, you want to trust everything. You want to trust that this brand represents a good product, whether it's an Apple or Mercedes or Honda and that, that trust behind the brand is kind of what comes behind it. Well, when it comes to salespeople, what they're really good at is earning people's trust, basically, by making them usually feel heard, letting them know that they understand and can empathize with their scenario. Like if you read the books on emotional intelligence, like that's the number one skill that determines if you're going to be successful or not is basically emotional intelligence, right? Your ability to kind of connect with people behind after, you know, after that is grit and everything else. But emotional intelligence is kind of the, the first thing because all of us know successful people and you're like, wow, like that person is successful, but they're really good at building relationships and earning people's trust and getting them to open up and stuff like that. So I think that's, this is the single most important thing in the entire economy. And we cannot 
can't break that trust. And right now, like if you look at it in all levels, trust is wobbly, right? <laughs> it's wobbly. And is there real news? You look at the hashtags, you, you know, this side or that side, and nobody trusts each other. And that's kind of, that's a, a little bit of a problem. But in sales and in your brand and your business and stuff like that, you need to take all of the actions that make sure that all of those little baby steps lead towards building trust. That's why we, you know, we value reviews because those are indicators of trust. It's why Google originally would rank certain sites above other ones because they said, well, if site A links to site B and we trust site A, then that basically means site B is probably pretty good too because they wouldn't link to each other if they didn't trust each other as well because they know that their reputation's attached to one another. So, um, so it's interesting how it works and, you know, how it's kind of um, progressing. But, you know, I think, you know, chat. I think you're right, though. I think mm-hmm. I think human um, human signals is now the way that we're using. It's going to be the the ultimate bar of trust. Yeah. It's going to say, is this human? Is this human generated? What did the human have to yeah. say? Uh, like, that's going to be uh, so critical. And so how like how people implement AI, I think it's going to be really tempting to try to replace the relationship. Yeah. I think it's going to be really tempting to put it in place where you're going to say, okay, this can actually be my ISA or this could be yeah. my, um, my outbound caller. But um, the, the reality is, is that if, if we do that on song, like if we do that all at once uh, as a society, you know, there's going to, phone calls are going to be over. Yeah. I think, you know, what, what you're probably going to end up seeing is it's going to work at first, right? Until basically, yeah, it's just like the key prompts that I'm mentioning to you, like press one to get to this department. And you're like, yeah, that should be faster. <laughs> but you realize you press one and then you get to press one and then you get to that and then you, you know, have to leave a voicemail. Then you wait for a call back. Right. It's like, where does where does the experience break down? Yeah. But I think one of the things that people got to be aware of is that nobody likes to be tricked. Yeah. And so let's say you have a conversation with someone and uh, or like AI is having a conversation. And I've, I've heard some pretty insane demos mm-hmm. recently. And, and so but let's let's say you're having this, this conversation with AI. Um, but then you find out after the fact that it was AI. Yeah. Um, and you're like, oh, I felt, you know, yeah. Like, I, I'm not sure I would have shared that if I'd known I was sharing it with a computer. Yeah, there, I think, you know, th- what's going to happen is it's going to explode quickly and regulatory issues are going to come back. Like the way that we've chosen to kind of implement it in our business is we take the signals of the real conversation that's coming back. And then we help the salesperson with the part that is really hard, which is the skill set. And we say, hey, here are some possible ideas of how you could respond and continue this conversation with this particular customer and we've trained basically chat gtp models to to try and take that input and then give back appropriate possible responses but we still want the human to read through because it needs to feel right because if it's a representation of them that it's basically doing the business i might save 30 seconds of cognitive load for that salesperson to try and draft up an answer Right. It's no different than, let's say, your Gmail when you start typing up the email and it's making the auto suggestions on email. You're like, yeah, that looks pretty good. Boom, send, done. (laughs) It gives you more efficiency, but at the end of the day, you're still writing that email. And we believe that that's kind of where AI is really going to be the best fit is on the generative side. I mean, that's basically what it's all about. 
not necessarily trying to replace, but to augment, to give you more efficiency, to let the human take and focus all of their time to do the thing that is single most important in our world because we service real estate people. That is a salesperson talking to a customer. And my goal is really simple. It's like if I can take a salesperson and they spend, their calendar is completely full for eight hours a day having conversations with people, that person will be successful no matter what. (laughs) The problem is if you look at most people's calendars, you know, they're spending 30 or 40% of the time doing data entry. They're spending, you know, 10% of the time at the coffee machine. (laughs) They're spending 30% of the time thinking about what they think they want to do. Basically, they're reviewing the task list. They're like re-reviewing the task list because they're like, oh, I don't want to call that person. I don't want to do this because that guy and so on and so forth. So they'll go through the task list three times before they actually make the first phone call. So it's just a lot of time wasted. And all that we try and do is we just automate that repetitive task of the outreach in the voice of a customer. When that customer responds, we know that there's a chance that if we did our job right, that salesperson might be on the phone talking to somebody else. So then we want to give them abilities to still be able to answer other people very quickly by having basically AI generate some recommended ideas if they happen to be stuck. This is super useful when now you can have people that might not have the greatest skill set in terms of sales, you're at least giving them better questions that they can use to have a better discovery call to help that customer at a much higher level. Because if you ask the right question, the customer opens up, has a dialogue with you. And the more that they share, the more emotional intelligence that you seem to have, the more empathetic that you seem, the more personal that they get in that sharing, the more that you're going to earn trust automatically just by disclosure. <laughs> right? And that's, that's the way that we are trying to solve basically the problem how we're implementing, you know, AI in, in our business, basically. So, but um, yeah, it, it, it makes a lot of good points. And, and I think that there's a, um, there's a future where AI is, AI is going to be ubiquitous no matter what. Yeah. Uh, the question is, is like think it's it's thinking through the problem in a way that says, how do we want to apply this? That's actually going to create the outcome that everybody really wants or everybody needs, right. and uh, and and help everybody be successful. And if you can do it in a way that is, as you say, like uh, able to get that conversation going, but then when you're having a conversation, now let's make it so that. If you're if you're meeting in a consultation form, that's what those are two real people having that yeah. conversation. Yeah. Because you're you're increasing the number of relationships that are taking place. It, exactly. And you know, I mean, listen, voice search has been around for a little while. Siri's been around for a while, and it's got legs. Like this is just a new way of basically moving on. Like I think the most fundamental change of Chat GTP more than anything else is that it's really just a new UI, right? That just allows people to take a bunch of information and it puts it in plain English for them and it lowers their cognitive load. Now, is that information correct? Can can the AI have hallucinations because of dirty data at the other end? Of course it can. And that's, that's a whole other problem that's going to come out there. But that's always been a problem of the internet, right? That's why Google does what it does and tries to get trusted sites to rank first versus other ones and so on and so forth. So that same problem is going to happen in this. And I believe what you'll see happen a lot faster is probably going to be regulation around a lot of this stuff. 
proper disclosures up front, you know, that, hey, this is an AI chatbot. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it's going to be, it's going to require exactly. I think, I think you're going to have to be upfront with yeah. that. And then it's going to be some sort of, um, uh, even as you were just saying that, it makes a lot of sense. It's like, let's say you go to ChatGPT, you ask it a question. It might give you, it'll generate an answer based on the information it has available. Right. And it will be creative with how it generates that information. But will it be skewed based on the model? Absolutely. It, will it be skewed based on the data that's put in the model? Of yeah. course it will. So it's yeah. um, so at some point, you're going to need to have human verification layer over top of that that's going to then say, okay, this we know is, is trusted and here's why we know it. You can dig through the source. Yeah. Whereas right now, the problem with ChatGPT, I'm finding, is that even like using it as a research tool, it was great um, a few months ago because I could it would generate all the sources. Right. But now they've stripped out all the sources. Right. So you're saying, okay, well, where did that information come from? If I want to go and look into it, was it one yeah. source? Was it 15 different right. sources? Right. Right. How did you, yeah. So it's, it's that. And, and um, the problem with that is there's no one to hold accountable then. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> right. And in U.S. society, we're pretty litigious here. So <laughs> we like to sue people and hold someone accountable. So you kind of have to have that available, right? If you don't have the original source, how do you know it's the ultimate source of truth? So um, so that's why, you yeah. know, I think ChatGDP, I know I was over at um, at a conference over at VidCon earlier this year. ChatGDP at that point was only like six months old or something. And the person, the representative that was there was like, listen, like, understand that the whole goal of this is just to generate and help you and assist you. It's not the ultimate source of truth. Like you really need to do that. And I think internally they recognize that as well. It's just basically they, you know, how it goes, I, I'm not really sure. I think the transformation is this idea of taking disparate information and making it really digestible, right? If we put on our marketer's hat, one of the first things that we learn is like, you want to write and speak at a fourth to sixth grade level if you want everyone to understand it. <laughs> and so if I can have, if I can search the internet and get the answers at a four to sixth grade level, that's going to feel like magic. <laughs> and that's why it's so impressive right now. But, you know, you don't really know if it's if it's true or not. I, I look at it purely as as an assistant. And that's why we're trying to we're trying to use it. And like the way that we do it, we we basically provide a couple solutions. And then what we do is we track basically did did our user use the actual auto generated response? And if they did use that response, did they modify it? Right. Because they're replying back via text message as an example. So we just basically keep some of that data so that we can try and, and train our own model, make sure that we're doing the right things on the back end too, and refine prompts and do all of that kind of stuff. But it's really early innings. It's a, it's a super, super interesting time of where things are going to go and, you know, and how it yeah. impacts marketing, like for you guys, basically, let's say the generation of ads and stuff like that. And like, where can, where can this go basically? Because. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're we're so excited! So um, we're we're looking at AI from a, like a completely different yes. angle, which is um, not just the content, but what can we do to help ensure that the content is being shown to the right person at the right time? And actually, so one of the one of the powerful things about AI, you can see this with with um, light rendering. Mm -hmm. So the if you if you see um, 
if you if you take a you know like a like a very powerful computer and you try to render a, an image that has light throughout it say yeah. it's for video games or movies that rendering can take pretty long it can take up to 4 hours yeah. in some cases and now they can do it in near real time they've they've got it to the place where you can literally um render uh videos of um that are 100% created by ai yeah. but in almost in real time so so if you let's say i know jesse i'm like jesse loves surfing right. so what if i have a brand and i know that you who are jesse and you love surfing and i can actually generate a video an advertisement specific with the person in there who's got their surfboards with them and they're getting into a car yeah. and the car is designed around surfing. It's like, I've just taken my vehicle that maybe uh, I never had an ad around surfing before, but I've just tailored yeah. it to you. And so when you see that video, you're the only person to see that yeah. car commercial the way you're yeah, seeing it's it. Super and, high level of personalization. And, that <laughs> Well, so you have the super high level of personalization. And so the reason that that's possible is because AI is incredibly predictive. Yeah. And so what they're doing is that for every one pixel, they're they're predicting the next seven. Yeah. And so it and this is where you can get really exciting, um, not just on the predictive element about the video, like what I just described now, like the advertisement creation, but even like like being predictive on um on who's who needs to see the content next. So it's like what if what if a person is showing signs that an AI can tell is saying that oh this person's probably likely moving into an, into a high intense stage, or they've moved from awareness and to education into consideration, but the AI is predicted and not based on anything someone's done, but because of certain certain feeds. Anyway, so this is this is the kind of stuff that that we're talking about with our team and just trying to figure out how we can solve. But the it's um it's a different a different side. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, you know, it's uh, next week, like I'm going to uh, an, uh, another conference, basically like a, an old school SEO conference. And the whole conference is all about basically AI, which is going to be kind of kind of interesting on that particular side. And then I was looking at like the Burrell conference, which has to do with advertising and stuff like that. That's going to be in Miami and looking at their entire, you know, uh, speaker thing for next March. It's, you know, half of it is all basically AI driven. So definitely feels like the internet um, enabled basically the distribution of technology and kind of made this all ubiquitous. But I'm almost in my mind starting to question like, what's the real revolution? Was it basically the internet or was it the computer? The internet allowed basically distribution of computing, right? But the real revolution that is coming, basically, like if you think of the industrial revolution and, and stuff like that, you know, and the print revolution and all these really game changing things is it feels like AI takes a computer and moves it from being a high end calculator <laughs> to being more human like. And it's interaction, basically, which then makes it more accessible. And is that the real revolution? And is this going to happen really quickly? Because now we have the means to distribute that because everyone has it in their pocket. Everyone has it at home. Every, you know, every device has access to the Internet. So it just feels like we're super early innings. And I predict there'll probably be like an AI bubble and that will explode. <laughs> <laughs> and it'll be a bunch of oh, regulation oh, sure. and then basically well even now yeah. 
And ChatGPT released the fact that you can upload PDFs yeah. and then they can now read PDFs. Yeah. And then all of, all of a sudden you have a bunch, a ton of startups, AI startups that just went broke yeah. instantaneously. Yeah. Yeah. They were all solving that problem. Yeah. And so it's, um, it's, it's definitely going to be that sort of bubble burst, bubble burst, bubble burst yeah. as it grows. But here's the thing I think about, which is you have, um, like you talked about these different revolutions, you have the industrial revolution, you have, but each of these had different kind of impacts. So one was efficiency, one was communication. So when you had the internet bringing people together, you have a revolution of communication, you have yeah. a revolution, the promise of efficiency, but we didn't really get to experience it until I think really the last few yeah. years. But it, there's that old uh, idiom, which is basically you can do things fast, you can do things well, or you can do things um, cheap. Right. But pick pick two of any three, <laughs> yep, right? Yep. Uh, but then AI comes along, and it's and that this is where I think the real just like the the revolution is. It's like we can like AI. It's like pick all three. Yeah. We can do things fast. Uh, we can do things well, like high quality, yeah. and we can do things cheap, yeah. like instantly. I was just and I, I was reading a, an interesting paper, and the paper was basically based on like what industries are most at risk. Right of AI, and they built this really interesting model. They took like um, data from the Bureau of uh, the BLS, basically labor statistics, and they identified like there's like 850 qualities that they've mapped to specific kinds of jobs. Right, and then what they did is they overlaid on top of that what can AI do really well: image recognition. It's good at language, good at comprehension, pattern recognition, all these kind of things. And it built this list of like, here's the things that are most endangered, basically. And it was kind of interesting. At the very top of that list, telemarketers. <laughs> so, but I'm sure that that's going to come with some form of disclosure, right? Because we already have robocalls. There's already yeah, robo it, must. it has to. So, <laughs> yeah. So maybe it's the other way. You call back in and then you reach what you believe is a person who diagnose, who basically says, hey, this is an AI chatbot. Tell me what you want. You know, and then you can have a dialogue and what it really feels like is kind of like a super high end IVR with key presses, like press one for this, press two for that, say yes. Or, you know, you call some offices now, it says like, you know, you call the credit card number, <laughs> credit card company says like, say your credit card number. And then you have to repeat it like four times. I can tell you get that problem basically solved. You know, I think AI is going to really stick on the generative side <laughs> of making things easy. But is the potential there? Of course. And with Moore's law of computing and things accelerating so quickly, you know, it might happen a lot faster than what we believe. <laughs> yeah. And this is, and this is part of where I think AI is going to be so ubiquitous because you, you list out all those yeah. qualities. I mean, um, they've already shown studies now where AI is, 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 um, it's better at diagnosing skin cancer than medical yeah. doctors. Yeah. Yeah. And so, are medical doctors going to be replaced? No, everybody goes to a medical doctor because they're looking for that comfort as well as the consultation and the expert advice. Yeah. But are medical doctors now going to be using AI to die? Yeah, I think so. I think it's going to become, it's going to become a tool for the professional in, in many ways. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very curious about this. So, um, yeah, Jesse, fascinating. in, it is fascinating. <laughs> in fact, I, I am loving this conversation. I, uh, you are a very interesting person to talk to. I could talk to you for uh, the rest. I appreciate of the, that this evening. Um, yeah, I'm, I've really enjoyed this. Uh, so as we um, kind of like wrap up, like 
so so just um, share with anybody listening. So what is call action and how can it help them? And then and then we'll, I have another question to follow that. Yeah, and then, yeah we'll kind of I mean, close. ultimately, what we do is we take leads from street techs and other fine companies like yours. Um, and we help you know salespeople follow up with those inquiries. Um, traditionally through text messaging because you have a TCPA compliant opt-in to begin with um, that gives us permission to basically do that follow-up with those particular customers. Um, And, you know, we're just going to try and get that particular person to reply back to the agent or to the salesperson when they are ready because what when someone takes the time to respond, what you're really doing is you're getting their attention. And this is the hardest part in today's world, right? Is that we live in a world of interruption. And the fact that someone is willing to respond back to you, the idea of like speed to lead, I like to replace it with the idea that it's really speed to attention. Because if I'm doing something a minute ago, it's still lingering. I still have it in my mind. So I'm going to pay more attention to that conversation when it becomes available. But if I send a text message to someone, I expect to reply back and I don't get it in four or five minutes, then usually what's going to end up happening is the world is going to interrupt me somehow. (laughs) And you've lost that moment of attention, which is the moment of intent, right? And then basically you're going to have to start that process of earning that person's attention. Again, this is why marketing is always going to be around because it's the constant battle of trying to basically get someone's intention, you know, attention. And so when a person responds to advertising, they are typically showing you their intent. And if we don't follow up immediately, we got to earn their attention. So we got to move them from intention to attention so that we can have that conversation. We'll have that singular moment in time, usually the first impression to earn that person's trust, to be able to continue to move that conversation forward thereafter and follow what we call our icon process. But that's basically what we do. Um, you know, aside from that, we try and create efficiency in your marketing because we give you call tracking phone numbers that are used for all of your marketing pieces. Um, if you think of all marketing, most people can respond in four different ways. Uh, it's either going to be they land on a website, which we love. This is the entire premise of the internet. You know, Facebook and Google make, you know, half a trillion dollars a year based on, on people filling out forms and advertising and driving traffic to those particular sources. But the one that is still here and it's the oldest form is that person may call or text because phones have been around a little while, basically. And those customers, what we've just learned over time is that those are now in today's day and age, actually the highest intent customers because they've already done all the research. So when they are ready to reach out to you, they're usually much closer to being transaction ready um, because they're giving you their attention and basically they're giving you permission to actually be sold, to have a conversation with them, right? Because they're giving you permission for you to tell you their story and they're entertaining you to see if they can know, like, and trust you based on what you say. And all we're trying to do is get people there as quickly as possible and create efficiency in the sales process so that you can keep your calendar nice and full all day long. So, but yeah. You know, that's, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And 
you know, when, as soon as you get to kind of, you get to permission marketing, yep. it's a totally different kind of marketing. Yep. Um, it's a totally different way of, of, uh, really developing and creating relationships. Uh, um, I should share with you a little bit about what we're doing on the remarketing side, just because yeah. it's, uh, it really complements even just the, the journey that you described. It complements it because what it allows people to do is, uh, I read a study. It's funny. I heard, I heard, I heard a statement that said it takes about seven hours of watching somebody on video, um, to form friendships. Then I decided to look in the original study and it's 50 hours, wow. okay. 50, five, zero. That was what the study yeah. said. So 50 hours before somebody like, like starts to move into the, um, I'm your friend, um, space. And so, but if you think about that, if, if you, if somebody has gone through intention, created an inquiry, and then, um, and then they are seeing you, you know, again and again and again, not in like an intrusive way, right. but because it's like you're, um, you know, you're answering questions that they're, they're relevant to, they start following your, they subscribe to you, they're starting to see your, your face again and again. Um, it's, it's only a matter of time, 50 hours to be precise, but only a matter of time before that person is now shifted into, you know, you're, you're in like, it's kind of actually is similar to what I experienced with you where it's like, I saw you so many times on, on Facebook through like different Facebook groups and different things. Um, and social media that I was like, Oh, I know who this guy is. Right. <laughs> and, uh. you know, and, um, and so it's, it's, it's like a, it's a real compliment for the trust building because then when you have a conversation that gets started through call action, um, or, or through, uh, through follow-up, yep. you, you're, when you pick up that phone now, it's a totally different kind of conversation. Yep. Yeah. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Cause they know who you are. Yeah. They know what you believe, you know, what you stand for. Yep. We, yeah. we've, you know, I kind of experienced that person really early on in some of that silo content kind of website, basically, where I would just provide all of the information possible about a particular subject, particular loan program or whatever it might be. So by the time that the customer would actually contact me, they already pre-sold because they already answered all their own questions. And so I do think there is a lot of power in that. And, you know, the, it's the hardest part too, is to stay in front of people and, you know, remarketing, retargeting makes that really, really easy, you know, and I think we had a, a discussion you know, at the last conference where we, uh, we crossed paths of basically, you know, being able to take phone calls, even if someone's never visited a website and building audiences off of basically that shared contact information and be able to get that information in front of them. And when you start to do that remarketing and you're doing outreach and you're appearing in all these different channels, you know, you get this marketing multiplier effect. So what happens is, all of the marketing, all of the individual pieces, you get a lift rate across the board, basically. So all of your marketing starts to become more effective because they're all complementing each other because, you know, all of a sudden you're omnipresent in that particular consumer's life. And, and you know, uh, that's why, you know, TikTok stars <laughs> and, uh, you know, Instagram and Reels and, you know, you got these, the social media famous phenomenon is pretty fascinating because it's 
going back to that 50 hours that you're talking about, right? <laughs> well, it's, it's what it really is. It's going back to the fire that you yep. were talking about. It's, it's, it's back to the time where people were like in a circle telling stories yep. to each other yep. and they were, and, and that's how they passed on knowledge. Yeah, they passed on knowledge and you spent your time listening to the storyteller, right? The old wise one. And so yeah. now you just have the choice to, to pick who that person is. <laughs> it's true. So. And, uh, and, and here, like, it's funny. So, uh, so you, you have a big SEO blogging background. You understand this stuff early in and out, but it was crazy. Yesterday I had a call from some guy. Um, he's this old, old, old dude. He, he just bought Careful, this classic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know how old he was, but he just kept calling him. He called himself as old timer. Right. So I don't, I don't know what that means, but, um, so he, he bought this classic bicycle. Mm-hmm. And he reached out to me. He like I don't I don't even know how, but um, he got a hold of me. Got um, he got my number. But the reason he figured out who I was was or from was because of my um, a blog article I had written in 2015 about a similar model of bicycle, and that content has had gone on to live long enough that he found it. And then, of course, he's asking me all these questions over the phone right. about the bicycle that he just bought. And I'm like having to dig way back in my memory base, just thinking, <laughs> like, oh, wait, right, right. OK, I remember. Uh, um, and then hopefully be able to help him. But it's just it's it, it's the same story, which is it's like when you when you put things out there and, and you create that sort of, um, you know, when you when you create trust or you you provide value um you're moving them to a permission based uh you know and then like there's nothing more than a professional would like is like if you're a mortgage broker if you're a uh real estate agent if you're anybody like if someone's calling you yep. and now they're picking your brain because you're the expert yep. uh that is that is the holy grail right. of what lead generation can ultimately become in the future I yeah think. it guarantees and, ROI and it's actually kind of require considering that all of this advertising model is all based on auctions and so there's limited inventory so what happens is as time progresses costs were going to continue to come up because there's only so much space that can be created right if you take google the evolution of google you went from in the serps results the first top three costs of those of bidding got so expensive. So what do they do? Basically, they launch a Google Maps so that they have more space, more content, more places to show advertising so that they can lower the cost of basically that marketing or the opportunity to get in front of people and create inventory. Well, at a certain point, like there's only so much inventory that could be created basically and costs will continue to go up. So then what we need to focus on is really the efficiency of if I do get that opportunity and I know what my acquisition costs of that particular, you know, inquiry is, I need to know what my actual full lifetime cost of, you know, cost of sale or cost per closing or however you want to basically, you know, call that including the cost of all of the follow-up and everything else that's, you know, that's all wrapped into one number, basically. Because what the lead is going to cost is not going to become, it's going to go up and it won't become as relevant as what is my actual cost per sale. Because if I run a PNL, right, which 
not, every business runs on a P&L. It's either about increasing profits or limiting losses. And limiting losses is about increasing efficiency, <laughs> right? That's how you basically improve your P&L is I do the same amount of volume, but I do it more efficiently than I have more profit. Or it's in reverse, basically. It's let's spend more money to generate basically more transactions that make me more money that most people, the easiest way to win is actually the other way around, which is becoming more efficient, doing the same amount of volume or same amount of transactions with either less spend in advertising, less spend in labor, less spend basically in resources. And then once you've got that dialed down, then you can spend more money to then ramp it up at the other end. And that's where you get explosive growth in your business. So, but... Yeah, uh, fa fascinating, you know, fascinating journeys. And, uh, you know, us as entrepreneurs, it's like you've got a lot of hats and a lot of things to kind of think about and still have your original vision, which is <laughs> you got to execute on. So it's tough. Absolutely. You know, what, it is. It is. It's like it's like being Bigfoot out in the <laughs> out in the forest. You're trying to walk around, not bring too much attention to yourself <laughs> right? because you don't want to attract too much competitor attention. But <laughs> at the same time, basically, you want to have your sights on your prey and, and be able to come through and, and be that big dog in the forest. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's it's. Um... It's interesting. It's a, it is, a, it's even interesting how you brought up the vision side of it, because, you know, if you have a clarity of vision, you, you can't help but execute towards it. Yeah. And, and there are always going to be opportunities and excitement and different things. Um, but one thing I've noticed is that people have, even if it's just like a one degree difference of vision, you know, as people are moving towards the vision, distance and time goes by pretty fast. Yep. And one degree of separation, if you're if you're trying to you know, like let's say you're shooting for the moon yeah. and and you're one degree different, one degree off, you're missing the moon. Yeah, like, yeah. And yeah, so yeah. You're people's at Mars visions all of a like <laughs> Yeah. And <laughs> you are Mars. And but but that's that's the beauty no. of it. Like when when Apple and Microsoft were baby companies and they just started out, I'm sure there were times where Steve Jobs and Bill Gates looked at each other and they thought each other was like after each other. They thought they were going after the same lunch. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yep. But their vision was one degree different. Yeah. And today they are completely different companies. Yep. Yep. But, but not only are they completely different companies, they are both trillion dollar companies. Yep. And so the thing is, is as long as people keep creating, yeah. they keep creating value, they keep creating stuff into, into, um, the world. Well, they're, what they're doing is they're creating wealth. Yep. They're creating opportunity. They're creating new economies just because of what they've created. Yep. And uh, and I think that's the the beauty of entrepreneurship is that it, everyone's vision, even if it feels like it's the same at the beginning, because it's like at the you know at the, the early stage, yep. it's never actually the same. It's like people they have a slightly different perspective of this. They have a different journey, or they come from something slightly different that they 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 realize an opportunity that other people maybe don't see. Yep. And because of that journey, they have a passion for it, so they go after it, and it ends up creating something that wasn't there before. Yeah, it's also it's also all of the micro decisions on a daily basis too, right? It's the learnings and that feedback loop that you create, and the, you're like, oh, I'm one degree off. And the earlier that you have that self awareness and insight and curiosity and awareness around you, the quicker you can kind of course correct, basically, and and keep keep changing but sometimes if you're off by one degree and you you 
get lucky and you offset by two degrees in the right direction, all of a sudden you're, like you said, uh, you know, a million miles basically further ahead than the, than the nearest competition. So, yeah. And you, and you land in an opportunity that um, maybe you didn't even see coming yeah. and you're just like, this is incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I'm perfectly sure. positioned for this. So what's, what's one piece of advice that you would give yourself if you were to meet yourself uh, 30 years ago? Uh, focus. <laughs> I say that because I think it's really easy and it's probably, it's, it's really easy to lose focus. Um, as the world gets more complicated, focus is actually a really hard thing. Look at kids today, right? Like they can't sit still. If you look at people, if they are forced to sit across each other at the table for five minutes, you know, someone is going to pull out their phone because something is robbing their attention or robbing their focus. And they, they really struggle with that. And I think that the better focus that you can develop internally basically the idea of of being a hundred percent present in that thing for a certain amount of time <clears throat> what you're able to do is get much better results much faster basically than kind of this idea of like multitasking right like if you can get three hours of really deep work is going to way outperform a week basically of scattershot you know, non-focused work. And so I think that's a quality that's really hard. It's trying to organize yourself um, in a way where you can have focus. And, you know, I think when you watch companies or, you know, smaller companies that grow and they, they go to acquisition or something like that, the usually the really big kind of cutoff point is they grew it the max that they possibly could with the focus that they had available. And then all of a sudden the company became so big that they couldn't focus on all of the moving parts anymore. And usually the company will kind of regress a little bit and then they regroup and they can realize when it slows back down, they have the focus to see where the problem was, wh why they were in their own way of getting to the next level. And then basically they're able to hire the right people, put the right teams in place, put the right systems in place, basically get out of their way so that they can focus on the thing that is most important and has the most value in what they currently do to build that particular business. And then I think that's why you kind of see that classic uh, crossing the chasm, like, you know, S-curve, basically you, you hit a little peak, you dip, you go all the way up company is going to grow at a certain point and then you hit that next kind of peak where everyone loses focus it becomes too big and you got to step back and everyone's got to regroup and get you know that right focus on the right thing so i think that's what it would be for me is you know focus and then patience i think that's the the other thing that's really important you know we you know, I know it's been said a gazillion times, like you overestimate what you can do <laughs> in a year, but you underestimate when you can accomplish in five, right? And if you look at most businesses, real success happens at 10 to 15 years. So it's like, you know, focus and patience. And you need both of those because there's a lot of times where you feel overwhelmed. You know, that usually comes from a lack of focus because there's all these different things that are all around us. And you kind of creates basically demotivation and and then, you know, it's hard to be successful. Um, I think being able to kind of step back and regain that focus 
um, is what allows you to kind of progress a lot faster. It's basically you got to slow down to speed up. Um, and, and yeah, it's part of the reason like why I have an outlet of like surfing, for example, is to slow down because that gives me that moment in time where, you know, I can sit in the water and, and daydream. And you think of like Steve Jobs or some of these guys where, you know, they're famously you know, known to have meetings by walking, right? They'd have walking meetings and that's because it would it would create a sense of focus and, and slowing down basically, less interruptions. And so that gives you clarity. Um, teaches you patience and um, everything else. So I don't know. I, I'm, I'm still working on learning what's most important. <laughs> it's a constant. It's a constant journey. So but. yeah, no, I you got my brain sparking. I was, I was thinking about um, myself. How I I have my right beside me. I have my um, indoor bicycle. I got my training set up. Everything and uh, it. Cycling is one of those things for me where even that last thing you said, uh, you know, Steve Jobs famously goes for walks with people on meetings. But it's once I get to a certain point in my ride, like 10, 20 minutes, it's like the mind becomes um, and I intentionally don't think about anything when I'm cycling. I intentionally don't. um, I don't listen to podcasts. I don't listen to music. I just I just will cycle. Yeah. And, but about 10 to 15 minutes or 20 minutes in, the brain gets so clear. And it's like a lot of the thoughts that were sort of maybe scrambled, they'll just come together while I'm cycling. And, uh, and and I kind of was thinking about that in tying, because you said patience and then focus. And those two things go really well together because when you have patience, when you have that space, you create it, um, you get that focus of the mind, which then obviously has the, um, the outpouring of that is that this focus in the activities yeah. um, and, uh, and, and, and you need that patience because otherwise, as soon as we feel impatient, what happens is we get distracted and we get pulled or yeah. Yeah. Or you seek to yeah. distract yourself, right? Because you're frustrated. <laughs> you're bored. Yeah. Frustrated or bored or, or yeah. yeah. So, you know, and then yeah. some of us have better habits than others around that, but <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, one of the most game changing things I've ever done, I, I hiked the, the John Muir trail. So it was like 206, 216 miles or whatever. And, you know, I spent three weeks backpacking and, you know, no phone, no nothing, basically just, you know, my entire life <laughs> on my back and a fishing rod and uh, fly fishing along the way. And I was fortunate enough to be able to do it with my father and learn like just walking in nature and doing absolutely nothing other than having conversation and in clarity and gazing out what it does basically is like you said is it expands your mind because i think creativity and and problem solving it's really hard to create something that is brand new right i'm talking a real invention that is nearly yeah, yeah, impossible. Yeah, like, that, like a novel, a novel yeah, idea. That almost never, never happens. Most creativity is when you take two what appear to be completely disparate things and merge it into a new experience. That's real creativity. If you take, you know, this frustration of, you know, I could just imagine like, you know, guys that create an Uber or whatever, like, man, I wish I knew where the taxi was at. And they're like, but I'm looking at Google Maps. <laughs> You know, why can't I see the car there? The light bulb goes off. Yeah. (laughs) Right? 
that's the only thing that made it that, you know, that was the magic moment, right? It creates this little spark all of a sudden, but that probably just came out of, out of nothing, right? Like it just, it's not too, he didn't invent Google Maps and he didn't invent the internet. It just took two disparate things, merged into one and created a new experience that solves a real problem. And that's where most entrepreneurs really need to focus on. And, you know, I think that, uh, that, you know, uh, that idea of creativity, a lot of times it's proven, like, why did it seem like the old world was so much more creative? It was just because they had a lot more time being bored. <laughs> <laughs> they, they spent a lot of time, you know, in nature and everything else and, you know, sitting and looking at the pyramid and going like, wow, like, you know, I've been sitting here for six months and I noticed that the planet goes, you know, the sun sets here and goes there and like you make a little mark on the ground and all of a sudden you invented a calendar. <laughs> that just comes from boredom. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. That, that I agree with that so much. So, and like uh, the light bulb, think about the light bulb. I often think if you knew, if you knew that, uh, if you run electricity through a filament that the filament glows and you knew that if you put um, a filament in gas, in, a, in some sort of gas, that the filament wasn't going to burn out um, and you understood how electricity worked, if you knew those three things, I feel like it wouldn't take long before you looked at a candle and you're like, why are we doing it this right. way? Couldn't we just, uh, you know, like it, the, I, I kind of think anybody could have invented the light bulb, yeah. but the key is is like you said being present yep. to being so that you can be aware of what's around you and then allowing the brain to just get bored and be creative yeah. like what happens yeah. when i put this together with this and, and i think you need you know a little bit of curiosity in there too right because you you got a question why <laughs> like either why are we doing it this way or is it why if i you know run electricity through this filament why does it burn out how do i solve that little problem and then like the, the all those things you know start to kind of come together you know i think most entrepreneurs that might be listening to this can probably relate to this why is it that like a lot of times you go to sleep with a problem and you wake up in the morning you feel like you solved it <laughs> like in the middle of sleep it's just because your brain does relax you know, and it's just kind of floating in there in the subconscious, but somehow you work through a solution and you wake up in the morning, you know, or like, you know, a lot of people's creative spaces in the shower. Why is it that ideas come in the shower? Because, you know, you're relaxed and you're quote unquote bored because water is just pouring over to you and that's just kind of relaxing and stuff like that. So it just allows these different synapses, these different disparate thoughts to all of a sudden come together and you get that light bulb moment. So it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. <laughs> it is, it is pretty interesting. I, I, I could talk to you about this for another hour. <laughs> I, I really could, but to, to be, um, yeah. So I, I just want to say, Jesse, man, I, again, I already said this before, but I, I really enjoy this conversation. Likewise. And, Likewise. uh, it, it's, it's fascinating to talk to somebody yeah, like I'm very, yeah, we're super similar in, in how we approach things yeah. or think about well, things, I'm, which is- I'm going to have to come up north and we'll have to have this conversation over a day of snowboarding and skiing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> oh man, uh, the snow is good in the winter out here. It's, it really is. So I definitely know that. So <laughs> I've been there before. So, but uh, I'll, I'll definitely be back sometime soon here. So, uh, well- 
I want to say thank you, man. I appreciate you. This has been tons of fun. What a what a great uh, episode. And anybody listening to this, how can they get a hold of you? How can they reach you? Yeah, um, so it's callaction.co, basically. So callaction.co, or if you do a search for Jesse, J-E-S-S-I-E, and last name Bowdwine, B-E-A-U-D-O-I-N, should be able to find me. Um, also, I'll give out my phone number because I like to talk to people. So that's uh, 323-741-2255. Feel free to call or text and uh, I'll get back to you as soon as I can. You know that's awesome. Well, Jesse, I've, again, so appreciated talking with you. This has been a great, great session. And uh, I know for sure we're going to chat again like on the podcast. Yep. So yeah, uh, whoever's listening. Next, next I'm going to uh, have you guys from Street Text. Basically, we're going to we're going to help our clients, our mutual clients, learn how they can do their business a little bit better. So, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, so Jesse's got a really really cool idea of what you can do with your return lead. So if <laughs> if you're from Street Text and you're using Street Text, and this is just know that there's something really cool that's uh, that's on the horizon. Yeah. So awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, sir. I appreciate. it. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>